Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 18th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Hundreds of Palestinians are believed to have died following a massive explosion at a hospital in Gaza. Hamas is blaming the atrocity on an Israeli airstrike. You have to get, take with a grain of salt any information that comes out of the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health in Gaza. That has to be said. Gamaz is not a democracy. There's not an independent health bureaucracy that is trying to do its best. Every doctor you speak to, every hospital director you speak to, works under the gun of Hamas. They are not independent. If they speak out of turn, they will pay a price. It's like speaking to a doctor in North Korea or a doctor in the former Soviet Union. They don't have independent opinions. They have to follow the party line, and if not, they they face violent consequences. That's Mark Ragav, a senior advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, speaking yesterday before the hospital in Gaza was bombed. As you see, all of us united, outraged by this massacre that has taken place, committed by the Israeli forces against the hospital, the Lutheran Hospital, in uh, the Gaza Strip, in which, according to the initial figures, about 500 civilians have been torn apart and massacred in this outrageous illegal crime committed by the Israeli forces against our people in the Gaza Strip. The Palestinian ambassador to the United Nations, Riyad Mansour, reacting last night as news came through of this horrific attack. Minutes after the blast, uh, Madison's Sans Frontier surgeon spoke to the BBC. Parts of the hospital are on fire. I don't know whether that's the emergency department. Certainly the operating suite, the, the part of the roof has fallen. There's broken glass everywhere. There are lots of people who are taking refuge in the hospital. There are people moved into the corridors. I need to go. 
Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitah, the American president has arrived in Israel. It was hoped uh, that his visit could result in the opening of humanitarian corridors out of Gaza, but the attack on the hospital last night has resulted in Jordan cancelling a summit with Joe Biden, Egypt and Palestinian leaders. We cannot have a summit uh, with these conditions We don't know what other President Biden is still going there or not, but he canceled President Biden too. Okay, so that because the only thing that would make sense if he made ceasefire immediately and I'm coming to to force the implementation of ceasefire. I don't know what he said, but the summit has been canceled. But my brothers from Jordan and Egypt can say There is no question the attack on the hospital is an atrocity on an unthinkable scale, but Israel says it was not responsible. We would not deliberately target a hospital. Now, my information that I have just received is that all indications are that this was not Israeli ordinance, but this was rather a Hamas rocket that fell short. All right, that's Mark Ragav once again. Let's speak now to Cahill Berry, an independent TD for Kildare North and a uh, former member of uh, the Irish uh, Defence Forces. Good morning to you, Cahill. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. We want to talk to you uh, about the potential impact on Lebanon and indeed Irish forces there. But uh, perhaps you'd like to react to what was an awful uh, atrocity last night. Uh, the amount of people at this stage uh, who have died is unknown uh, 500 at a minimum it could be far more than that and I think it's probably expected that it will be more than that the uh, Pre- uh, Secretary General of uh, the United Nations Antonio Guterres has called for an immediate ceasefire in the region and I'm sure that's a call that will be echoed far and wide today would you agree? Uh, absolutely and good morning Michael and, and lovely to speak to you I think, I think it's my, my first time on your show here actually um, but look, a terrible tragedy uh, last night, uh, for sure, in the Middle East. Um, we can say with a, a high degree of certainty there was an explosion on a hospital campus, for sure, and there's a large number of, of casualties. Um, what we don't know, and there's no independent verification of it, is uh, who would have caused it, whether it was deliberate or whether it was inadvertent. And we don't know the precise number of, of casualties or fatalities either. So it remains to be seen, but uh, obviously a terrible tragedy. And uh, I suppose regardless of who may or may not have caused it at a human level, it's largely irrelevant because um, at a human level there's, there's a huge amount of grieving and mourning across uh, Gaza at the moment in relation to the amount of people who were killed unfortunately. And much further afield, protests across uh, the Middle East. It's a powder keg uh, at the moment and Hezbollah is currently determining how it will react because it will undoubtedly want to show its support for Hamas following the Israeli attack, if it was Israel uh, who was responsible for the attack on the hospital. Iran backs Hezbollah uh, and that will they will closely monitor Hezbollah's decision and the international community, particularly the United States, will observe uh, observe Iran's potential involvement in this conflict, I take it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right. Uh, the Middle East is a powder keg. It's a, it's a tinderbox for sure. And just going back to last night, it's, it's again, I won't say irrelevant, but, but largely irrelevant from an outcome point of view in relation to who did what, because perception is reality. And most people will perceive uh, whoever's responsible based on their worldview. So this is going to have large repercussions. And we've only seen in the last 30 minutes that Joe Biden has landed in Tel Aviv uh, today as well. So he's in for a very, very high stakes, interesting 24 hours. 
see whether he can get humanitarian access into Gaza or whether his mission will be a failure. So we'll be mm. tracking that up for the next few hours. And his plans have already changed and quite dramatically so with the cancellation of that summit which might have got some people out of Gaza. And the question now is because of that perception people will have because of the worldview, as you say, of who was responsible for the attack on the hospital if this conflict will broaden. And prior to the incident at the hospital, there was a lot of apprehension that Lebanon, the stronghold of Hezbollah, might emerge as the next battleground in this ongoing conflict. This recent escalation in hostilities overnight has only heightened those concerns. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Hamas is the, the militant organisation in Gaza and Hezbollah is the militant organisation in, in Lebanon. And what they have in common, obviously, is obviously they're both Arab and Muslim militias, but they also have the same paymaster in, in Tehran as well. So Hezbollah, my understanding is that they don't really want to get involved, at the moment at least, and any activity on the Lebanese border to the north of Israel that's really just been symbolic skirmishes really over the last five or six days. But there is a possibility that Hezbollah would become more decisively engaged. And what's, what's expected is if, if Israel does actually go into Gaza with a ground offensive and goes in decisively there, then we would anticipate a lot more activity on the, uh, on the Lebanese border and Hezbollah, Hezbollah might become much more involved. That, that would affect Irish troops in the region. And what way would it affect Irish troops in the region? Would they be in the line of fire as such? Yeah, absolutely. So there's about 340 Irish troops in Lebanon, with 140 in Syria, and about a dozen across Palestine and um, uh, and Israel. So we're about 500 in total, but specifically the 340-odd in, in Unifil, their job really is to patrol the blue line, which is a, a line of demarcation between Lebanon and Israel. It's not an official uh, international frontier yet, at least. There's still a bit of a disagreement in relation to where the, the boundary actually lines. But that's where Irish troops actually are. And uh, if Hezbollah are firing rocks into Israel, and if Israel are retaliating in return, and then Irish troops could be caught in the crossfire, basically. But like, they're quite well established that the camps that they're living in, that the tree camps that they're mm. living in, uh, they've been there for a number of years and they're, they're quite well protected. Right. Uh, and would Irish troops become involved somehow? Uh, no, they'll try and stay out of it for sure. Their, their main focus in that circumstance will be uh, observe and report. So as we've learned last night, information is really, really key and having reliable, impartial, objective information is really important. And that's what our troops will be doing. So they'll be passing information back to UN headquarters in New York and assisting uh, decision makers there from that point of view. So okay. there's 10,000 10, UN peacekeepers in Unifil throughout about 40 different countries and, and Ireland is one of those components. Uh, and a dangerous place to be posted as we know but uh, quite possibly about to become all the more dangerous. Uh, have you any thoughts on uh, the uh, bombing of the hospital last night? Israel is saying uh, that it was in Hamas a missile that was fired from a church behind the hospital that fell short. Uh, does that add up in your mind or what are your thoughts? It's, it's very hard to, to know when you're so many, so many thousand miles away, you know. Um, just looking at some of the footage on open source media this morning, it seems to have been that the point of impact was in a car park actually outside the uh, the hospital building itself and perhaps it set fire to a, uh, a fuel 
uh, a fuel tank or something inside in my car, you know, which caused a larger explosion. But I, I certainly haven't seen any evidence of a, of a large crater. So if you do crater analysis, you can see whether a, 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 you know an explosion came from a, a bomb dropped from an aircraft. But I, 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 I just removed anyway. So far, I haven't seen any crater which would indicate a, an aerial drop to the mission. So I haven't seen a crater yet uh, to analyse properly. So all the indications at the moment is that the explosion would have been on the surface. Mm. Um, which would indicate that it wasn't dropped from an, uh, an aircraft. But again, that could change as more footage emerges over the next few hours. Okay, and I take it that when Joe Biden meets uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the first question the American president will have for the Israeli president is, were you responsible? Because if, if it turns out that Israel was responsible, this will be looked on as a horrific war crime. Yeah, absolutely. So I was just looking at footage there over the last 20 minutes. So Benjamin Netanyahu has met Joe Biden on the, the tarmac of Tel Aviv Airport there. My understanding is he's going to basically have a very long meeting with the Israeli war cabinet uh, for the rest of the day and they'll tease out what the approach is from there. So uh, I would anticipate the big discussion, the point of, of discussion will be whether they can get humanitarian access into Gaza. Uh, and secondly, then, is there going to be an Israeli ground offensive? And, and if there is uh, into Gaza, uh, what form will it take? So how far will they go in? How deep will they go in? And how long will they stay? These are kind of the, the matters that will be teased out. Okay, and Joe Biden follows in the footsteps of uh, the uh, Secretary for state, Anthony Blinken, uh, and uh, there's lots of questions as to why that ground offensive hasn't started as yet. Do you believe it's because of Anthony Blinken's intervention and asking them to hold off? Yeah, it could be. There's a lot, lot of reasons. Um, I suppose what we're hearing is these various might be a bit concerned that Hezbollah might become more active in the northern border. They don't want to fight at two fronts at the same time. Secondly, the American warships that are assembling uh, in the eastern Mediterranean at the moment, they need another five or six days to get there. There's U.S. Marines coming from the Persian Gulf into the a second aircraft carrier coming from the States as well as the USS Eisenhower. So the Americans are in position, yes, and they're concerned about Hezbollah. And obviously there's pressure internationally coming in Israel to minimise, uh, quite rightly, minimise uh, civilian casualties uh, in Gaza as well. So all those factors are at play at the moment. So there's no guarantee that Israel will launch uh, a ground offensive, but it's, it's far more likely than not. And the only question remains is how, what, what, what form will it take? Will it just take raids where they go in for a few hours and mm. then come out? Or will it be much more substantial? I take it most people would feel that the mighty Israeli army has uh, the wherewithal to flatten Gaza if that's what it chose to do. What kind of strength would it have if it was to fight this war on two fronts? So they've just mobilised in the last week 360,000 reservists. So you can add that with their 50,000 family army. So they've over... 400,000 uh, people really so they do have reserves um, and they do have a track record of, of being quite effective uh, in conventional warfare the problem of course is uh, for, from their perspective is international public opinion and it's very very focused on Gaza at the moment it's obvious that it's a, it's a David versus Goliath if you, if you pardon the pun um, type situation but in this instance uh, Goliath would be the, the Israeli side uh, rather than the, the Gazan side so uh, I think 
Israel will have to be very, very careful in, in relation to what it does, um, how much collateral damage it causes, and how much unnecessary suffering that, that it will cause. And it will cause if it goes into gas because it's such a, um, a densely populated area and mm. it's such a small area as well. It's only about 12 kilometres wide and about 40 kilometres uh, deep. So it just shows for, for 2.2 million people to be living in there, you cannot possibly uh, go into that type of enclave without causing a large number of civilian casualties. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and what then if it was to go to a third front uh, because uh, there's a lot of tension in the West Bank then as well. Absolutely. So um, I guess Hamas are in charge of Gaza and the other Palestinian territory is the West Bank, which is the West Bank of the Jordan River. That's why they call it the West Bank. And Fatah is the political military movement involved there. Mahmoud Abbas uh, is in charge. Now Fatah and Hamas don't get on, so they're two separate uh, Palestinian territories. They're not connected in any way, but obviously they are Palestinian brothers and sisters, and whatever happens in, in Gaza will have ramifications for, for what happens in Ramallah, which is the, the capital of the West Bank as well. So it's likely that there will be some spillover into West Bank. What will that take? Will it be a kind of civil unrest? Will it be a type of strikes? Will it be a type of uh, rioting? Or will it be more uh, involved uh, conventional uh, operations? So that, that remains to be seen. But there is likely, as you said, a third front opening up, which begins to West Bank as well. OK, and this is uh, where the politics come into play. Uh, the Taoiseach meeting with other European leaders uh, last night. Uh, and uh, I think things have changed uh, somewhat uh, since Ursula von der Leyen visited Israel and uh, gave her unequivocal support to the Israeli offensive. The Taoiseach was saying in the doll yesterday that Israel has the right to defend itself. Uh, there were some questions asked to whether that included invading Gaza. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Israeli position and what action they should take? Yeah, so, so I think the, the Irish uh, state's position is really starting to become much more nuanced and much more balanced and much more measured now, which uh, I, I very much welcome. Uh, some political parties here had particular views on the long-running uh, Palestinian question and they're kind of re-evaluating that position in light of, of recent events as well. So look, uh, I think Ursula von der Leyen's uh, intervention, uh, unwelcome, unwise, but it's probably due to her German heritage. I mean, most Germans are are hardwired basically to be utterly ashamed, quite rightly, of, of what their country did during the Holocaust and the Second World War. So they do actually have a leaning towards um, the Jewish state, a leaning towards trying to help uh, Israel. So that was probably uh, one of the factors in, in her decision to travel there. Um, so hope, hope that answered your question, Michael. All right, indeed you did. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. That is uh, called Berry Independent TD for Kildare South. Now we'll have much more on this uh, attack on uh, that hospital in Gaza last night uh, and indeed the consequences of it through the programme. If you'd like to make comment we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000 text or WhatsApp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, some comments coming to us uh, this morning. Michael, the USA is talking out of both sides of its mouth against Putin, but backing Israel. Palestinians have been in the same position as Ukraine for years. When are these lunatics going to realise killing solves nothing? How long more must women and children have to suffer? The world has gone mad. That's a message that's come to us from Jim in Navin 
Nelson. Thank you very much, uh, Jem, for your text to us uh, this morning. Our text number is 0861800658. That's 0861800658. Text the conventional SMS way or WhatsApp it to that number 0419832000. If you want to ring us, email Michael at lmfm.ie. Peter in touch with us saying, Michael, why would Hamas kill over 500 of their own people? More Israeli lies. Uh, they're the great deceivers uh, and everyone in the West will believe anything that the Israeli government and military says because uh, Zionists control all the world's media, including here in Ireland. I suppose you won't read this out because the same Zionists control LMFM as well as all of the rest. That's why we're getting a biased view of Middle Eastern wars, says Peter. Thank you, Peter. I have no idea where you got that idea from, uh, but I, I don't know why Hamas would intentionally kill 500 of their own people. What the Israelis are claiming is that they unintentionally killed at least 500 of their own people and quite possibly many more than that because uh, they were shelling Israel and one of their missiles fell short and fell on the hospital. That's the Israeli uh, argument at least which is being uh, contested and counter-argued for that matter Uh, John in touch with us uh, this morning Uh, we don't have Palestinian refugees here as yet and I don't know if we'll have any or if they'll get out of Gaza at all or if it'll be possible to get out of Gaza but John texting us uh, about refugees saying that there was somebody under a pseudonym of John uh, on television I think saying there's empty buildings yet they're still keeping us in tents Uh, and uh, John says what's the problem here there's thousands of Irish homeless people who don't even have a tent and could use those same buildings if uh, their own government would ever think of offering them for occupation Uh, then pigs may fly says John Uh, another strange uh, call Uh, thanks John Um, I'm not sure where you got that Uh, because I think anybody who is homeless in this country uh, is offered accommodation, temporary accommodation, whether it's in a hotel, a B&B or a hostel or something like that. Quite often, people refuse to go into hostels in particular, uh, and that's uh, when you see street sleepers. Uh, But when we talk about homeless people, they're generally in accommodation. Mike, the Israeli terrorist army has been at this for years. It didn't start last week, and they are backed by the USA and the British terrorist armies. That's uh, from Matt in Drogheda. Well, thank you, Matthew, for that. The whole region is at the brink of falling into the abyss that this new cycle of death and destruction is pushing us towards. And that is uh, the King of Jordan uh, who was speaking yesterday. Uh, There's a lot of concern, obviously, for people in Gaza who can't get out and what their ultimate fate is. The threat of this war expanding is real. The cost this will bring on all of us is too much to bear. All our efforts are needed to make sure we don't get them. Indeed, that is undoubtedly the case. But what about that question about refugees? Uh, If they were to get out of Gaza... Uh, through that Rafah border into Egypt, uh, I think people would be very happy, or into Jordan for that matter. First part of the question on the issues of refugees coming to Jordan, and I think I can quite strongly speak on behalf not only of um, 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 uh, Jordan as a nation, but of uh, our friends in Egypt, that is a red line. Uh, because I think that is the plan by certain of the usual suspects to try and create de facto issues on the ground. 
No refugees in Jordan, no refugees in Egypt. This is a situation of humanitarian dimension that has to be dealt inside of Gaza and, uh, and, and the West Bank, and not to try and push the Palestinian challenge and their future onto other people's shoulders. Well, it really does uh, leave you in a, a dreadful situation if you're one of uh, the innocent civilians, one of the innocent men, women or children who are stuck in Gaza at the moment with no way out, all these bombs falling down, uh, whether it's on hospitals or houses or God knows where next and ahead of what seems to be an imminent land offensive when the tanks start to roll into the country. Now, that was King Abdullah. Let's uh, go back uh, to the United Nations. And earlier on, we heard from uh, the Palestinian ambassador to the UN, Riyadh Mansour. I think we can hear a little bit of a press conference that was held last night after the bombing of the hospital. And we hold Israel responsible for this massacre, this crime, And those responsible for this crime should face justice and should face accountability and should be, you know, a punishment uh, uh, rising to the level of this crime committed against our people to be faced by them. We as an Arab group demand immediately a ceasefire because the continuation of the war it means killing more Palestinians every moment. Had the Security Council shouldered its responsibility yesterday and stopped the fighting yesterday, stopped the war, the aggression, the crime against our people yesterday, then we would have been able to have those 500 killed still alive and with us. So the Security Council has to wake up and we will not relent nor spare any effort that will uh, stop us from going after the Security Council and all components of the UN, including the Secretary General, not only to condemn this crime, and they should, but also to have an immediate ceasefire to save lives, to save lives of Palestinians and to save lives across the board. The Israeli Prime Minister today said, and I quote, the intelligence from multiple sources said that it's the Islamic Jihad is responsible for the failed rocket launch. Your, your response? He is a liar. His uh, spokesperson and digital spokesperson tweeted that Israel did the hit, thinking that there is around this hospital a base for Hamas, and then he deleted that tweet. We have a copy of that tweet and Talal can share with you that tweet. Now they change the story to try to blame the Palestinians. It is a lie and they, the Israeli spokesperson of the army, about a week ago made a statement in which he said evacuate the hospitals. The hospitals are target and in fact they hit one hospital a week ago. So their their intentions is evacuate or hospitals will be hit and they are responsible for that crime and they cannot fabricate stories to deal with it. 
Now that's uh, Riyadh Mansour, who's uh, the Palestinian ambassador to the United Nations, speaking to journalists at a press conference last night. Uh, text comes to us from Margaret this morning. She wonders if uh, the Jews are going to do to the Palestinians what was done to them by Hitler, only in a, a different way. For a people who was treated so badly, you would think they would have more empathy for their fellow human beings. Murder is murder, no matter who can carries it out. Power hungry, greedy men are the cause of all wars and the ruination of the world. Religion is used as an excuse by these narcissists to start some of these wars. Thanks Margaret very much indeed for sharing your thoughts with us. If you'd like to make comment on the programme today, like Margaret you can text us on 086 1800 658 phone us on 0419832000 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, family breakdown is uh, very difficult, I would uh, imagine, for everybody in uh, the family, particularly for the children and quite often for the fathers who end up living somewhere other than where their child is resident. Here's a a very interesting statistic for you. Uh, Dads are non-resident in 20% of Irish families. That's a fifth of Irish families. And that means that over 350,000 children live in one-parent families. 86% of those are headed by a mother. Uh, Now, Trior has published a report called Establishing Meaningful Relationships Between Children and Fathers Who Do Not Live Together, Challenges and Solutions. Let's speak to Sinead Murray, spokesperson with Trior. And a very good morning to Sinead and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. You spoke to many families uh, and the vast majority of those told you they're finding it difficult to make uh, arrangements for fathers to meet up with their children. Yeah, good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, so Tror commissioned this research along with a few other organisations like Women's Aid from Lads to Dads, Men's Network, um, Doris Bree and Daughters of Charity. And we found that um, when we were looking at fathers who are not living with the children, that there was a number of challenges that both mothers and fathers faced. And one of the big realisations of the research was that mothers and fathers in this research wanted fathers to spend more time with their children. So that was really, really important. Mm. And so um, what we were looking at were what were the issues that stopped that and what can we learn to improve um, the relationship between the father and the, and the non-resident child. Okay. Um, and what are the reasons uh, that it doesn't happen? Why are our fathers not seeing more of their children? So um, one of the issues is that um, the conflict after a relationship can leave both parents you know, in a really a very vulnerable state. Um, and it's very difficult for the entire family. And um, there isn't a lot of family support services available um, for these families in terms of how to navigate that conflict, how to build a parenting plan together post-breakup. Um, and also there's not uh, a lot of support for fathers specifically in this situation. Um, and then on top of that, uh, you know, if you end up going to court, that can make things more adversarial and increase the conflict for parents. Um, and that means that you get caught in this cycle of conflict rather than 
you know, alternative dispute resolutions like mediation mm. being available. And the other issue is that the housing crisis does impact on this. Um, unfortunately, like it does a lot of other things. So fathers are being forced to live further away from their children once the relationship breakdown happens. Yep. Um, and they may not be able to, to, you know, be anything other than the weekend dad because of practical like location issues. Hmm. Um, and because hmm. there's not access, um, child access centres, if a father's living in precarious accommodation or shared accommodation, they don't have a safe place to bring the child, then that means that they're forced to spend time in shopping centres or in parks. And, you know, with Irish mm. weather, that's not exactly practical. The McDonald's so, dad, uh, as uh, yeah. people will often uh, refer to dads in that situation. But you're suggesting that community organisations could play a role in facilitating fathers meeting up with their children. Absolutely, yeah. We would like to see community organisations um, to take a, a lead on this in terms of providing those spaces that are child-friendly and fun for children to go to and that allow the father and the child in multiple different situations. So if they don't have a stable accommodation that's safe for a child, if there are substance abuse or welfare concerns for the child, this is another place for them to go, that whether there be supervised access if necessary and um, where a professional is there to make sure the welfare of the child is safe. Um, and so we would like to see community organisations provide those supports as well as and, um, you know, support programs specifically designed for fathers and how to, you know, increase their, uh, the, you know, their relationship with their child. Mm. Uh, what happens uh, in a, a case, uh, whether uh, you're going to McDonald's or uh, some uh, space that has been made available through one of uh, the community groups, if that was uh, to happen, if uh, the mother objects uh, to access, uh, is that when mediation is necessary? Yeah, so the un- so for sure, we're the National Information Service for Unmarried Parents, and that's because there's a specific um, legal situation for um, unmarried parents compared to married parents, and particularly for dads who were never married to the mother. So automatically, the father does not have any access to their custody rights. So they're often forced to go to court, which, as I said, can increase the conflict. Um, if the parents try to arrange the access themselves, if the mother doesn't agree, the father will be forced to go to court. Now, the alternative is to go to mediation if both parents are open to it. Um, and that can be really helpful to keep the child at the centre of all decision-making for the parent. Mm. And this is really important as well because, you know, a lot of the time the responsibility for child-rearing is left on mothers and the care the children is put on them. And so if we can have fathers be more involved in the day-to-day decisions as well, that can be really beneficial to mothers as well. Obviously, this caveat of the research is obviously that safety is paramount and, you know, we need domestic abuse screening when necessary as well um, for to make sure that, you know, everyone and particularly the children are, are all safe and their welfare is protected. Mm. Uh, as you say, eight organisations are okay. involved in this, one of them being Women's Aid. Uh, and uh, if uh, fathers are abusive uh, to their partners, there's obviously concern then for the safety of the children uh, if uh, they're to meet up independently. And perhaps it's something that should be supervised or something like that, is it? Yeah, so those child contact centres I talked about, they have there's kind of two models for them. One is that if you if there's no welfare concerns, but there's just not um, a safe place to bring them, like a private accommodation, that can be done. Um, and then the other one is that to have a supervisor, and um, so to make sure that the the child is safe. And we, you know, we really took on Women's Aid recommendations in terms of and their expertise 
in terms of one of the recommendations was domestic abuse screening and risk assessments when necessary as well in all these cases and that we need to have family support services and um, statutory bodies you know, be able to identify the signs and symptoms of domestic abuse for both victims who are men and women and to make sure that, you know, everyone is safe and that the right supports are given to the family at the right time. And this is access uh, to children from toddlers up to the age of 18. I take it there are occasions when the child doesn't want to see the father uh, and you're saying that children should be involved in those decisions. Yeah, so in 2015, the Children and Family Relationships Act shows that we need to consider the voice of the child, the best interest of the child in all, you know, court decisions. And so this needs to be accounted for as well in parenting plans. Now, what can often happen in this report we found was that if a child is too young to express their views, say if the breakup happens when they're a baby or toddler, as you say, then the child is not accounted for, but that continues even as the child gets older. And um, so we do think that the voice of the child in the best interest has to be accounted for in any parenting decision and any family support services need to be aware of that as well. So the children should be consulted about these arrangements mm. and also, um, you know, have their voice heard. And they, at the minimum, need to be communicated about exactly what's happening, when they're going to see both parents, so they have a sense of you know, stability. And, you know, it can be that a, fo- a child doesn't want to see a parent for a number of reasons. It can be to do domestic abuse, but it can also be a practical thing of, the, you know, if their father lives very far away and they've got activities on at the weekend and things like that, or they want to see their friends. So, you know, all of those need to be accounted for because compromises could be made in those sorts of situations. Okay, uh, but something needs to happen, I-, I think, is the argument that you're making to improve the situation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the... The issue at the moment is that we're not seeing um, children have their best interests be accounted for. You know, the rights of the child are, are quite clear, and um, you know, children should be loved and cared for by both parents when it's safe to do so, and that's a, that's a right for children um, when it is safe to do so. So we really want to see these um, recommendations, you know, furthered in both family support and community services and also statutory bodies. So early intervention for, you know, post-separation for families and screening, as I said, in relation to domestic abuse and trauma-informed care, access centres and, you know, uh, piloting uh, mediation services, which in combination with family support services to make sure that the mediation can be as successful as possible. Okay, Sinead, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinead Murray, spokesperson for TROR, the National Information Service for Unmarried Parents and Their Children. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, thanks uh, to Deirdre who's been in touch with us, finding it very difficult to understand how a hospital could be bombed. Just not right uh, and uh, dreadful to see what's happening in the world. Uh, another text uh, from someone who says if Mansour and Hamas have uh, supposedly deleted Israeli tweet admitting they were responsible for the hospital disaster, Hamas would have shared it. I believe Israel's accusation that it was an errant Islamic jihad rocket and where fragments of the rocket fell onto a cache of Hamas rockets and perhaps other ordnance being stored on hospital grounds. Thank you as well. Uh, That's uh, not signed, but thank you uh, for your text or WhatsApp message. Uh, Another WhatsApp message from Margaret. Number two, Margaret, number two, she says, (laughs) not to confuse uh, with uh, the other Margaret. Uh, Thanks, Margaret, for your text or WhatsApp message. She says, 
I don't think the world can comprehend such evil in mankind, such as that of Israel and Palestine. How could you hate each other so much to inflict such horrific cruelty on each other? And it's the adults that teach this barbaric cruelty to their children. The rest of the world can't understand this. The peoples of Northern Ireland should be so proud of themselves. They've learned to respect each other's traditions on both sides. No one wins in war. It's incomprehensible. Thank you, as I say, Margaret. More than 3,000 Palestinians, including 1,000 children, have been killed so far. Thousands more injured. 600,000 people have been displaced. The people of Gaza, a refugee population, are running out of food, water, fuel and electricity. As the wrath of one of the world's most ferocious military forces is unleashed upon them, as their homes and neighbourhoods are decimated by Israel's carpet bombing, Gaza's civilians are left with nowhere to shelter, nowhere to run and no way out. Yes, as you'd expect, the crisis in the Middle East dominated dull business yesterday. Taoiseach, Israel's actions are not defensive. They are an offensive attack against a beleaguered, impoverished civilian population. It is the horrible crescendo of occupation, annexation and apartheid. This is not defence. These are crimes against human rights perpetrated in full view of the world. And if we don't call it what it is, if the international community doesn't stand unified against it, then history will record this as the defining failure of our generation. And our children and our grandchildren will ask us how this was allowed to happen. Peace and justice demand that Gaza not become the graveyard of international law. So Israel's blockade must end. The bombardment of Gaza must stop and ceasefires called, hostages released and space created for a dialogue. And that's the Sinn Féin President Mary Lou Macdonald speaking during leaders' questions in the Dáil yesterday and making comment on the Taoiseach's belief that Israel has the right to defend itself following on from the Hamas incursion on October 7th. Uh, Ireland unreservedly condemns the brutal attack by Hamas and other militant groups on Israel and the devastating uh, loss of life it has caused. We also condemn the terrorist attacks that occurred uh, in France last week uh, and in Belgium only yesterday. Uh, And we also demand the release of all hostages without any conditions immediately. Israel has the right to defend itself and to pursue Hamas terrorists who attacked its civilian population. And we accept that right. However, Israel's response must be exercised within the parameters of international humanitarian law. Even wars have rules. Collective punishment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It should not be inflicted on the population in Gaza. Citizens must be protected, and Gaza must have access to humanitarian aid. Uh, there must be the establishment of humanitarian corridors. There's also a need to prevent the conflict from escalating and spreading to other parts of the region, which is an enormous concern at the moment. There wasn't complete agreement between the Taoiseach and the Sinn Féin leader. It is abundantly clear that Israel is not abiding by international law, humanitarian law, or the war, law of wars, as uh, you put it. There are 3,000 Palestinian deaths, many more people missing under the rubble. We have witnessed with our own eyes collective punishment, the targeting of civilian infrastructure, no water, no medicines, no food, and an increased level of desperation. We have seen, and Israel openly called for, forced transfer of the population. Another violation of international, in the clear sight of the international community. So I appreciate absolutely the need to condemn the horror that was visited on Israel and the killing of those civilians and taking of hostages. I absolutely do. But I cannot understand or accept your failure to condemn the Israeli onslaught on a refugee population hemmed in in what has been described as the world's largest open-air prison. An impoverished refugee population. The answer to this is peace. The answer to this is a ceasefire. Not a humanitarian pause, not a de-escalation, a ceasefire, Tishik. And I ask you again to, to make that call and take that message to the European Union. And it uh, was uh, the leader of uh, the Social Democrats, Holly Kearns, uh, who added to this debate next. There's no water or electricity. Food has nearly run out. Even the body bags have now run out. Hospital generators are running on fumes. When the hospitals do run out of fuel, sometime today or tomorrow, incubators keeping babies alive will be switched off. Their short lives will be over then too. Humanitarian aid, food, water and medical supplies are stuck in Egypt because Israel has refused to agree a ceasefire. Israel won't even stop bombing for a few hours to allow citizens of its supposed allies to get out. There are 40 Irish citizens in Gaza. They're trapped. The carnage and terror they're witnessing every second they remain there is unimaginable. Taoiseach, this isn't a war, it's a genocide and an ethnic cleansing. And the response of the EU has not just been inadequate, it has been callous, indifferent and dangerous. This reached rock bottom on Friday when Ursula von der Leyen visited Israel. By then, Israel had dropped 6,000 bombs and on an area half the size of Louth. Thousands were dead and injured, food, water and electricity supplies had been cut off and the Israeli government had given 1.2 million people 24 hours notice to leave northern Gaza. 
What was the European Commission President's response to this litany of war crimes and breaches of international law? She stood with the Israeli Prime Minister and offered him the EU's unqualified and unconditional support. She said, Israel can count on the EU. Tishuk, last year when Russia targeted civilian infrastructure and cut off electricity supplies, Ursula von der Leyen called out their war crimes. When Israel acts similarly, she not only fails to utter a single word of criticism, she goes to the region to offer support for their work, war crimes in our name. The Commission President's failure to unequivocally condemn Israel's collective punishment of the Palestinian people has undermined the EU's response to this crisis. Given von der Leyen has no authority to override member states' foreign policy positions, her comments also amounted to a serious overreach of her authority. Tishuk, I'm grateful that you and the Tornish have been clear that Ireland's position is that Israel are in breach of international law, but it's really concerning to hear your words this morning in this chamber, because they're weak. You have an opportunity at today's emergency meeting of the European Council. So I have three questions. Would you explicitly condemn the EU Commission President's response to this humanitarian disaster? What will you do to ensure Ireland exerts the strongest possible influence for a ceasefire and de-escalation of violence at that meeting? And what is the government doing to get Irish citizens out of Gaza? That's Holly Kearns. Let's hear some of the Taoiseach's response to the leader of the Social Democrats. While I think that President von der Leyen has done an extremely good job as President of the European Commission, whether it's on issues uh, such as uh, climate, issues such as COVID, issues such as Ukraine, um, some of the statements that she made uh, lacked balance, uh, in my view, uh, and I've said that to her uh, and have no difficulty saying that. Um, I do think the statements that she's made more recently uh, were more balanced, uh, specifically talking about the tripling of EU humanitarian aid for, for Gaza and also the attempts that we're making at the moment uh, to organise a, a UN humanitarian air bridge uh, from Gaza uh, through, through Egypt. Strong comments from the Taoiseach and a final retort then from Holly Kearns. We have a responsibility to the people of Palestine to do all that we possibly can in the upcoming hours and days to push for a ceasefire and the opening of aid corridors because you mentioned that but the tripling of EU aid to Palestine is pointless unless these corridors are opened before it's too late, Taoiseach. We need to make it unequivocally clear that Ursula von der Leyen does not speak for Ireland has no right to offer our support and the support of the other 27 member states Thank you, Deputy. to Israel as they rain down bombs on innocent civilians. <clears throat> Tishuk, the UN are calling this um, uh, an ethnic cleansing and the EU are failing to even condemn it. Um, the EU officials are still failing to offer any kind of criticism. Thank you, Deputy, so how please. long more will the EU stay silent at the expense of these people? And will you please, please use your voice today to represent Ireland on this? The, the, the more Thank minority you, the voice, the more time. important it is to speak louder for these people. Yeah, those statements were made in the Dáil yesterday, obviously before this horrific uh, bombing of uh, the hospital in Gaza, which appears to have resulted in the deaths of at least 500 people. There were over 2,000 people at the hospital, including 1,000 patients and hospital staff 
staff and another thousand people who were seeking refuge, seeking shelter in the hospital. Uh, That had reduced from uh, uh, about 5,000 people who were looking for shelter in the hospital uh, a number of days ago, uh, but left because of shelling in uh, the area and out of fear moved out of there. But the final death toll is as yet unknown, at least 500 and many, many hundreds uh, indeed injured at, at a minimum. Uh, there'll be more statements in the doll today, but I think all of the focus will be on the Middle East and the visit of uh, Joe Biden, the American president, and if something could be done to bring about some sort of ceasefire or humanitarian corridors out of Gaza for innocent civilians. If you'd like to make comment on this on the programme today, We'd love to hear from you as always. Our telephone number 0419832000. That's 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp us on 0861800658. That's if you want to send a comment to us. Send your text to 0861800658 or email it to michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. is a charity that offers support to women impacted by prostitution and human trafficking. Today is EU Anti-Trafficking Day. Let's speak to Danielle McLaughlin, who is uh, the Policy and Communications Coordinator with Ruama. And uh, a very good morning to you, Danielle, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Yesterday, Ruama published its annual report. Tell us a, a little bit about the work uh, that you've been doing over the course of the last 12 months. So Rahama is working with individuals impacted by prostitution and human trafficking and sexual exploitation. Um, and we're working across the country and we've opened our, our new hub in Limerick. Um, and we also have an office in Midlands. Um, we're working over 30 years um, in the sector. And last year we saw a 35% increase on the amount of individuals that we worked with. We worked with 497 people um, and unfortunately, a huge there was a huge increase in the number of new referrals of victims of human trafficking. And um, we've seen this increasing steadily. Um, we we worked with a total of 147, um, and six, 68% increase in new referrals. Um, and a lot of that may be down to several factors. But we we've expanded our services. Um, we've been able to expand. Fortunately, due to increased funding from the Department of Justice um, and a new zero tolerance strategy in domestic sexual and gender based violence. Um, so, we've expanded on our, our, our outreach services. We're doing um, more outreach in homeless services, addiction services, mm. um, direct yeah. provision centres, and Ukraine reception centres. And in all of those places and other frontline services, we, we've expanded our training. Um, we increased our training by 50%, and that is to help uh, frontline workers who, who might come into contact with individuals impacted by sexual exploitation and, and to identify signs of trafficking mm. um, and, and to be able to work in a trauma-informed and trauma care um, 
capacity. And I, I, I suppose there's a that, lot of expansion in a lot of areas. Sure, and I suppose that perspective uh, uh, is uh, the half-full bottle way of looking on it. Uh, but if uh, the bottle is half empty, it, it could be because there's been an increase in prostitution and an increase in trafficking. Today is EU Anti-Trafficking Day uh, and 147 of the people that you worked with over the course of uh, the last year had been trafficked here. That's right. And as they're saying, that the, the increase, I mean, it, it can be down to that there's a possibility and it's very, very hard to determine and ascertain the level and the true numbers of, of trafficking in Ireland because the reality is it's very hidden. Um, the women, a majority are women, um, are trapped. Um, and the fact that we've reached out to further kind of services um, and, and areas that where, where women might be identified and, and they're often isolated. Um, and the fact that they will be supported to be referred to other services when they often ha- are not aware of these services for support. Mm. Um, so it, it can contribute to the higher numbers, um, but it, it's very, very difficult to determine how rampant uh, human trafficking is in Ireland. Um, they're very organised criminal gangs, and they're working in multiple countries. Um, and we've heard of numerous raids and um, efforts by joint uh, authorities, for example, Romanian police authorities and PSNI and Gardaí working together on on cases of trafficking. Um, So it is is extremely difficult to to work um, towards preventing this, but a lot of the work now is focused on um, prevention, um, awareness raising um, and work to, to protect the individuals and victims. Indeed, uh, there was a huge cross-border operation that took place yesterday from Donegal to Louth, a joint agency task force looking at a a lot of illegal activity, not just human trafficking, but indeed human trafficking for that matter because uh, it is that type of business, if you like. And it is a a big business where, as you say, people are trapped into prostitution. It's very difficult for a lot of us, Danielle, to understand how somebody is trafficked into prostitution in a a country like Ireland. Uh, But you say that they're trapped into it. How do you trap a a woman to have sex several times a day with different men seven days a week? Yes, I mean, it is hard to comprehend and what we do find is that most of the trafficking that we encounter has has occurred outside of Ireland um, and women have been moved and trafficked into Ireland um, through many different routes, often through the UK first and then on Northern Ireland into Ireland. Um, And and what happens, there's there's many routes into it. Um, This is what, what, what the base is normally is, is women are targeted who are in vulnerable situations, um, whether it's, you know, poverty, um, you know, um, there's, there's, there's violence, um, adverse kind of child impact, adverse events, um, and really just women trying to, to take an opportunity where they're lured um, by the, 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 the lie of a, a, false, um, a, a false kind of job that's waiting for them. In another country, they're told, you know, I have a job for you in London and we pay for you to come over. And then when they land, they're told they have to repay all this money um, and they're forced into prostitution. And they're told this is their job. Um, so the women are often duped into it um, and they're in that situation because they believed that they're, they're going into a real job and say, you know, a care work or a shop. 
Um, and then, you know, they're often, what often is the case is that either they're threatened or their family is threatened. So they're, they're, they're told them that they know their family um, in their home country and that there's people there that will, will threaten their lives. So they're trapped in the sense that they, you know, they, they don't have any immigration permission. They don't know where to go for help. They don't know anyone. Um, they don't know if they can trust the police because maybe they've had adverse um, effects or, or, or difficult experiences in their home country with the police there. Um, and they're afraid that their family will be, will be uh, attacked. So, you know, these are told, these, these mm. stories are told us over and over again. And we feature two um, stories in our two real life stories in our in our annual report that was launched yesterday. Mm. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're basically the same story, um, but from two different countries, two very different individuals. Um, and we're seeing this on a daily basis. Mm. And you work with women who've refused to become prostitutes, but have had a, a violent response. Yes, I mean, one example um, came across very strongly yesterday. Um, one of our service users and a victim of trafficking um, was, uh, was was forced into prostitution in Northern Ireland um, and she stayed there for five years and she described it to RTE um, in an interview um, and that she, yeah, she was forced into many very, very traumatic um, situations um, and just by the, the, the sheer luck of, of a punter who, or an individual who offered to help, she escaped. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the pure trauma and lifelong impact that is going to have on her, um, it still affects her and she's five years escaped. Um, you know, mm. it, it, it's a very, um, com- you know, often women are experiencing complex trauma um, they've they've suffered horrific um, violence um, and have, have you know will have that carried with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, a very lucrative business, obviously for the pimps, but there wouldn't be any business if there weren't any punters. That's it. Um, I mean, we often talk about um, the guy, the criminal gangs, and, and 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 fighting this, but there would be no gangs, and there would be no. Um, you know, human trafficking or, and the violence against women. And we know process, we acknowledge prostitution formally now in Ireland as, as a form of gender-based violence um, without the punters and the sex buyers. And it is a crime, it is illegal in Ireland um, since 2017 to purchase sex. But we have this demand, it still exists, and we do need to start talking about mm. that um, as a society. Um, and and, 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 and you know, reaffirming that, that we don't accept this as a society. It is violence against women. Um, it is not okay to purchase sex and um, basically to to rape women over and over again. Mm. Um, it is lucrative business and it's there because there are men out there who want to take advantage of that um, uh, I, I and think, who want to abuse women. I think often there's a, a perception of those men as some sort of, of shady characters, but that's uh, quite the opposite of uh, the truth. Most of the time, there's somebody's boyfriend or somebody's husband, for that matter. Yeah, I mean the the the, the evidence and and a lot of the, um, the the evidence and the cases that we could have in, we we know that often it's it's men with money um, and and uh, they they're wearing wedding rings. Um, they have children. Uh, they're you know kind of middle class. They have money, stable jobs, and it's a kind of a hidden secret. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, there, a lot of what we think 
it's down to is, is a male entitlement. Um, obviously, you know, not every man, the majority of men don't purchase sex, but there's a there's a, a, a you know a cohort of individuals and men out there who who are purchasing sex and feel like it's okay um, and aren't being pulled up for it. Um, it is it is very difficult to 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 monitor to prosecute. Um, and we're um, we're awaiting the outcome of a review of the legislation currently, um, where we put forward ex- uh, recommendations, and there are re- um, expectations to uh, to in- to um, amplify the the resources and the capacity for the Guardi to arrest and prosecute. Okay. Well, Ruama, as you say, has worked with 497 women over the course of uh, the last year. We'll leave it there for the moment, Danielle. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Michael. That's Danielle McLaughlin, who's Policy and Communications Coordinator with Ruama. Michael Reed on LMFM. 24% of people in Ireland worked in agriculture in 1973. That's a quarter of the population compared to 4% today. It's just one of many fascinating statistics that has been released by the Central Statistics Office, which has looked at the transformation of this country, the economic and social change in Ireland from 1973 to 2023. And given that statistic, you'd have to say that back then, uh, 50 years ago, there was probably a a lot of lads on tractors singing long-haired lover from Liverpool, uh, but they weren't earning much money for that matter. The average earnings at the time was just over £30, but not so bad when you take into account that a loaf of bread was 13p or the cost of a house was on average just over £7,000. Let's hear a little bit more about this because there's an awful lot in this data and Colette Keane is head of the CSO press office. A very good morning to Colette and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember 1973 but a a lot of people remember it uh, very fondly but it certainly was many worlds away in terms of the country that we live in today, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, uh, that's what's so fascinating about this data is that it's a chance to look at you know, uh, take using the opportunity of um, marking Ireland's 50-year membership of the EU and charting some of the economic and social change uh, through some of the data that the CSO has collected uh, over those de- over those five decades. So Ireland was a very different place uh, in 1970s than it is now. Um, one of the things that struck me when I was looking at it was even things like how we collected uh, consumer prices. Um, so in the 1970s, uh, the CSO would have collected the price of a gin and tonic and a vodka and white as a lounge bar sale, which probably indicates that um, it was around the time when a lot of bars wouldn't serve women in the bar, that you had to drink in a separate area from men, um, whereas now we just collect the measure of the spirit and the price of the measure of the spirit and as a bar sale. Mm. Um, so that's just one of the things that uh, popped out to me. Yeah, absolutely. And women didn't like to be seen in pubs uh, for that matter. As you say, if they were to be in the pub, it was to be in the lounge and not in the bar where it was men only. Uh, it was a very different time for the European Union for that matter in 1973, wasn't it? Ireland joined the European Union or the EEC, the European Economic Community, on the 1st of January 1973, uh, along with uh, the UK and Denmark. Uh, the total membership as a result of the three countries joining was nine. 
Yeah, it's amazing to think that it started off at such a small group and that over the years it's been transformed. You know, now it has 27 member states. It used to have 28 until the UK dropped out there a couple of years ago. So it's now 27 member states. And, um, you know, we used to be kind of considered the periphery of Europe, I suppose. Um, and over the decades, we've certainly become uh, more central to the decision making in Europe as well, I think, you know. Mm, absolutely. Uh, we're not all talking about uh, the Middle East today. In 1973, everybody was talking about the Middle East as well and the Arab-Israeli war and what that meant for oil prices. Indeed, trying to get petrol at the pumps was near to impossible at times. Yeah, it, it, it's funny how, you know, some things stay the same and some things change. You know, that in 1973, we were talking about um, crisis in, in the Middle East. As you say, there was an Arab-Israeli war which caused um, a, a staggering 300% surge in oil prices on global markets, which meant that the barrel of oil went from kind of $3 to $12. Um, and, it, you know, it's just funny looking back on... on um, some of the events that were happened in 1973, you know, the, the World Trade Center was built, the Sydney Opera House was built. Um, so, it, it, yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting to look back and to see what has changed and what has stayed the same in terms of what's going on in history, you know. Yeah, uh, and uh, as you say, life has changed for women. They can go into the bar or the lounge or, or whatever. Uh, in, in 1973, uh, life changed for a lot of women in this country uh, because if they were married, uh, it was possible for them to work, which wasn't the case previous to 1973. Yeah, the lifting of the marriage bar uh, was one of the most significant, I suppose, changes in social history here in in the 70s. Um, Before that, if you were married and if you were um, working for, um, you know, the the government and any kind of official job like a teacher or anything like that in the civil service, you had to give up your job once you got married. Um, And um, around the time that we joined, uh, the lifting of that marriage bar uh, came into force, which meant that women could actually stay on and work if they wanted to uh, after they got married. Okay. Uh, and uh, then they would spend their hard money, <laughs> earned money uh, in the pub or buying bread for 13 pence or a bag of potatoes uh, for 16 pence. Uh, it seems ridiculously uh, small amounts of, of money at uh, this uh, time. But uh, talk to me about pounds, shillings uh, and pence because people were grappling with getting used to the new money then, weren't they? Yeah, we the money had changed just before kind of we joined the um, the EC as it was at the time. At the time, we had changed over to the decimal system. So previously to that, Ireland had you know threepence and sixpence and half crowns in circulation. And uh, in 1971, we introduced the the terms of things that people hadn't heard of before: the half p, one p, two p's, and on all the other coins. Um, and people might remember the the lovely coins that we had uh, at that time, which were full of uh, depictions of Irish wildlife or art from Irish manuscripts. So, you know, the, mm. the salmons and, um, you know, images from the Book of Kells on, yep. on, on the yeah, 1P and 2P mm-hmm. in particular. Um, and we actually joined the European Monetary System then in 1979 which resulted in the first break from sterling. And then obviously we joined the euro then, uh, which came into force uh, in January 2022. Okay, Uh, And what about that price of £7,000 or £7,000, £7,095? It was the average price of a house at the time. Uh, Can you uh, talk about that in today's money? 
I, I don't have the equivalent of what it would mm. be, but if you were just, uh, um, if £7,000 in, in euros today would be 9000 but I don't have the actual equivalent of what it would be worth. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know, so you've gone from the average uh, cost of a residential property in 1973, which was 7, 000, just over £7,000, and it's now as of June 2023, uh, £318,000. Mm. And actually in the chapter uh, on the CSO website, cso.ie, people can go and have a look. We have a lovely little graphic there which charts the average price of a house throughout the five decades, so throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s. So you can see that in the 70s, the average price for that whole decade of a house was €14,000. And it stayed below the €90,000 mark up until the 2000s when it uh, soared to €267,500. Obviously, then we Mm. fell down a bit after the economic uh, downturn um, and we've seen the prices back up again to those kind of uh, pre-Celtic Tiger levels uh, in the last year. Very hard to put into perspective. We might dream of the idea of buying a house for uh, (laughs) £7,000 but try to do it on a salary of uh, £30. Uh, It's a a very different story. Um, We're living in a a very different country. Uh, I I think uh, we uh, benefited uh, greatly from joining the EEC and uh, the EU subsequent to that uh, and our, our fortunes changed as a result. Would that be a, a correct perception? I think so. I mean, you, we can't obviously attribute everything that changed in Ireland to our membership of the EU, um, but it obviously has been a significant factor when looking at our economic and social progress. Um, you know, we European laws that came in that we would have had to introduce um, and our economic fortunes obviously have changed over time. Uh, one of the startling statistics uh, was that uh, the balance of trade and goods in 1973 was minus 268 million uh, Irish pounds in 2022. That was a surplus, or not a surplus, it was a plus of 67.6 billion. So you can see how our trade, even with our European partners and beyond, has improved significantly. The value of the goods we're trading has increased significantly. And even our education uh, levels over that time, I think that's part of, probably one of the biggest elements in the success story of Ireland mm. has been our education attainment levels. So um, in yeah. um, in the 70s, you know, probably about 26,000 uh, students were registered for college in the year 1972, whereas in, in 2016, that was 181,000, mm. uh, you know, registered to, to get a third level degree. Yeah, so that's uh, been a big yeah. change. Well, that, that's a huge change. I take it, though, in 1973, most people didn't do their leaving cert, let alone go on yeah. to college. Uh, they'd have left after their inter, as it was called. Absolutely, there was you know the the, the you had there was bigger families to support. People had to get leave school early to go and get a job, mm. um, and, and do that. So you can see the change in educational attainment yeah. uh, from uh, primary, secondary, and in third level. And it's I suppose it's interesting to note that um, you know Ireland now has the joint second highest third level attainment figure in the EU so 62% of our population has a third level degree now which obviously has been as I say a significant factor in in how well we have done as a country I think It's very topical to talk about that today because uh, close to 72,000 students are collecting their junior cert results Uh, in 1973 that would have been it they'd have been out to work, at least the majority of them would have been Uh, and they may not have been able to find work a lot of them would have gone abroad 
Yeah, uh, we, we also have a chapter in the um, in the in the publication on migration, um, and we can see how that has changed. You know, the story of Ireland has always been one of emigration and immigration, um, and we can see that the number of you know people who um, um, who uh, sorry, apologies, uh, the number of people who arrived um, mm. was was about thirteen thousand in uh, 1973 whereas in 2023 it was much more attractive for people to come here and you know 77,000 people came here. Uh, You must have been working on this for ages uh, I take it Colette uh, because it's very comprehensive every line is completely fascinating Uh, and you look at at almost every aspect of life in this country from an economic perspective and a a social perspective for that matter you remind us of the politicians of the day uh, and how Eamon de Valera had been the President of Ireland forever <laughs> many people would have told you uh, and uh, he, he finally stepped down well, I, I actually, I was when I was researching this. Uh, this, as you say, it has taken months. It's a team of us that put this together. Every section, pretty much every section of the CSO, has been involved in providing the statistics for the release. But um, I, I didn't realise that our only our fourth president had been elected by 1973 because Eamon de Valera had stepped down as, as president at the remarkable age of 90 in that year, and uh, it was also a year that where we saw Jack Lynch. Uh, starting the year as Taoiseach, uh, but by March, Liam Cosgrave had led a coalition of Fine Gael and Labour into uh, power, ending 16 years of Fianna Fáil in government. So again, you know, we kind of echoes with, uh, with the, some recent history here. OK, I take it religion is a, a big part of uh, the change that can be seen in this country uh, because we're talking in 1973 about Holy Catholic Ireland and there is no question about that and the influence that the church had on this country not just from the pulpit but uh, the uh, ears of government uh, were available to church leaders and so on but that started to change in 1973 did it not? Yeah, well, what we did for this publication is we looked at um, religion, I suppose, through the prism of marriage choice. Um, so in 1973, 96% of marriages were Catholic ceremonies, and that has definitely changed over the last five decades. Uh, by 2022, um, Catholic ceremonies accounted for 42% of all uh, ceremonies in Ireland. So that was a very significant change over the last 50 years. Mm, indeed, uh, but uh, there was also a, a referendum on the special position that the church had in the constitution. Yeah, that's part of our historical context that we had. It was uh, interesting to see that in the January of 1973, um, we removed the special position of the Roman Catholic Church and other named religions um, in that year. So I suppose that was the first kind of started the sea change in terms of uh, the change in how Catholic um, uh, the, ca- the Catholic Church had in terms of uh, uh, our society. It's absolutely fascinating, Coletta. I noticed you didn't answer my first question, but I'm sure, like me, you're far too young to remember 1973. But thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Thanks very much, Michael. Thank you. Colette Keane, head of the CSO Press Office. Michael Reed on LMFM. We'll go back to the doll now and statements that were made yesterday on foot of the publication of uh, the scoping report into the death of Shane O'Farrell, which has recommended 
said uh, that there is no need for a- an inquiry into the matter. He was killed in that hit and run by Mr. Jezuka, a man who had 42 previous convictions. He was on, on bail in respect of several offences. He had breached the conditions of bail. That man should not have been at liberty, to say the least. Instead, he was driving a, a vehicle involved in a hit and run, resulting in the death of a fine young man. It is practically incredible to think of the litany of, of his offences and the time he was before our courts. The 11th of January 2011, he was in Monaghan Circuit Court. 9th of May 2011, he was in Monaghan Circuit Court. Two days later, he was in Dundalk Circuit Court. The 8th of June, a few weeks later, he was in Carrickmacross District Court. Again, on the 14th of July 2011, he was convicted of theft in Newry, brought back before Monaghan Circuit Court. 25th of July 2011, he was convicted of having no tax disc in Monaghan District Court. All of the above offences should have resulted in that man's bail being revoked. No steps were taken by the Gardaí to ensure that that happened. He was well known to Angarda Siakana. He was well known to Interpol and the PSNI. His record was an extensive one of criminality with more than 40 previous convictions for a variety of offences. No matter how we debate these issues and no matter at what length, there is a fundamental question that the scoping report does not answer. And that fundamental question is to how the person who killed Shane was at large on the 2nd of August. Shane was not responsible for his own death. Speeding offences are not trivial. The very least that the O'Farrell family deserve is to get the truth in relation to how there was such a litany of dereliction by state agencies and state officials in relation to the man who drove that vehicle that caused Shane's death, that man being at large on that particular day. That's Fianna Fáil's Brendan Smith. Uh, another local TD is Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy. This House and its desire were explicitly clear. This House voted for the establishment of a public inquiry. The scoping exercise was actually a mechanism to usurp the desire of not only this House but the upper House as, as well. And you've referenced the trial You've referenced the coroner's court, you've referenced the GSOC investigation and the scoping exercise as if all of those amount to an in-depth analysis uh, as to why the person who killed Shane was at large on the night that he was killed. In each and every single one of those, pivotal and vital information was denied to the court or the investigative body um, that was subsequently unearthed not by any state body, but by Lucia O'Farrell and her family. There were questions, obviously, from local TDs, but not just local TDs, from TDs from every corner of the country. The outcomes of the district court cases are transmitted electronically from the court service um, criminal cases tracking system to the uh, Garda Síochána Pulse system via the criminal justice interoperability system, end of quote. The question is, why did this not happen? Was this an isolated case? And if so, uh, that raises questions as to why there there was special treatment. Uh, You know, was this man an informer? If he wasn't an informer, we should be just told no. 
It, if that answer doesn't come out as blunt as that, then why wouldn't we, we continue asking that question? Many TDs asked if he was an informer. The question was asked time and again during a long debate. But the government has no intention of establishing an inquiry into how the death of Shane O'Farrell was handled. Here's what Minister Helen McEntee had to say. It was taken by government a number of years ago to conduct the scoping exercise. And it was very clearly outlined in the terms of reference that if a public inquiry um, were deemed necessary following this scoping exercise, uh, that that would be considered by government. Uh, So I have never, nor has government ever, uh, throughout the scoping exercise said that we would not accept a public inquiry if that is what was recommended. Um, But we have a report here that very clearly outlines the reasons um, that a public inquiry uh, should not take place and government has um, brought this to cabinet uh, and a decision has been taken in that regard. Minister, that concludes the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, uh, concluding uh, that uh, debate uh, in the Dáil last night, indeed, bringing our programme to its conclusion for that matter. Some comments that we didn't get to today, unfortunately. We'll get to them tomorrow, though. Uh, and thank you to everybody who's been in touch. Maggie McGuire researched the programme today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.